Welcome to Living Free Today, a ministry of Cornerstone Fellowship in San Lorenzo, California. These podcasts are the weekly sermons of Dr. Michael L. Wilson. Please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 8. Matthew is the first book of the Gospels of the New Testament. Matthew chapter 8. Jesus is in Capernaum. And while you are in Matthew 8, most Bibles come with this little ribbon thing. Put this ribbon in Matthew 8 and turn over to Luke 7. Luke 7 is the same miracle as is found in Matthew 8. And we shall look in both places as we go through and understand what this miracle is and what Jesus is doing. As I said, Jesus has returned to Capernaum. Capernaum, if you recall, is where Peter's family lived. It's where Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law. It is a very large fishing village, a very large port, and because of that, it had a very large Roman presence. Rome was the ruler of the world at this time, and Roman soldiers were wherever it was necessary to keep the peace and people to pay their taxes and people to do the right things. In this passage, There is a centurion, which is a Roman soldier. As the name implies, a centurion manages or commands 100 people. So he is a pretty high level in the local area of uh, commanders. He had 100 people that he could tell to go here or there, as he talks about. And he has a servant who is paralyzed and dying and in great pain. And the word for servant is a word for a young person, a young servant. So we do not know if this person is a teenager or perhaps even, you know, 10 or 11, but it is a servant of this centurion to do the housework and to get things done. And this person was very important and very dear to the centurion. And so when this person became sick, became sick unto the point of death, in Matthew it says that this person was paralyzed. In Luke it says that this person was sick to the point of death. So this person was not going to recover. Something had taken control of this person's nervous system and made them paralyzed. And so the the centurion probably had means to get doctors, probably figured out as best he could how to fix this servant. Nothing was working, so he hears of Jesus. Jesus had been in Capernaum before. He healed the demon-possessed man in the synagogue. He healed Peter's mother-in-law. He healed... A lot of people at the end of that day. And so the word had spread throughout Capernaum that Jesus could do these sorts of things. And so this this centurion, not being a Jewish person, a centurion in the Roman army would be 
a Gentile would be a person not of Jewish birth. He, according to Luke, uh, he sent the elders. It says in 3, when the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews asking him to come and heal his servant. He did not feel worthy, as it says. He did not feel part of the inner group to go, and he didn't feel it was appropriate to take you know, 50 men and go and command Jesus to do this. He's a very godly man, as the elders say. The elders look at him, go to Jesus, and said, And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And so this, a Gentile knew who the true living God was. He understood and believed in the God of the Jews. And so when they were coming to Capernaum and Capernaum was growing, the Jews needed a synagogue to worship in and to do their Saturday service. And so this centurion, and it looks like with his own money, and perhaps with his soldiers, he used them to build it, was able to get the materials and pay for the materials and build a meeting place for the Jews. And they were very appreciative of that. They looked at him as a very worthy Gentile. You did not have to, in, in Jewish lore back then, live as a Jew and follow the, uh, the Mosaic law as a Gentile to be considered worthy and a godly man. And so they saw him as a godly man, although he was a Gentile, and so they you know, kept him at a distance, but he was somebody that they respected and looked, looked up to. And so they told Jesus that he is worthy for this healing. He has done enough to earn the healing, is what the Jewish elders were saying. And so Jesus goes with him, and that is also in Matthew 8. In Matthew 8, he says, um, he comes to the house. Jesus comes to the house, and the centurion comes out, and he says, I am not worthy to have you come into my house. And so the Jewish elders see him as a worthy, godly man, but he has a true understanding of his position before God, he had heard things about Jesus and he, he clearly is putting pieces together as to who Jesus is. And in Luke uh, 7 and 6, he says, Lord, do not trouble yourself. So he calls Jesus Lord. That is a term that is reserved for the king or Caesar or God. Those are the only three people in the existence that you can say Lord about. You do not call, you know, the tax collector down the street Lord. You call him other things because he's a tax collector. But he called Jesus Lord. And so this shows us that in, in the centurion's mind, he is putting Jesus in his proper place. He is putting Jesus in a place of divinity. He knows that Jesus is somehow connected with God. I'm sure he didn't have the full understanding of Jesus being God incarnate at this point. 
But he says, you don't, I'm not worthy to have you come in. Another aspect of this is that if a Jew entered a Gentile's home, that Jew would be ceremonially unclean for a period of time. If you recall when Jesus was being tried by Pilate, the priests would not go into Pilate's home because if they went into Pilate's home, they could not participate in the Passover that week. And so either this, uh, this centurion understood that and didn't want to put Jesus in a bad position of being ceremonially unclean, but he also says, uh, I understand authority. And he says, Jesus, you've got authority. And the, under, the authority that the centurion understood was military authority. He was a military man, and he understood military authority. When I was in the Air Force, I was in the Air Force from 1981 to 1985. And my uh, commander-in-chief at that time was the President of the United States, who was Ronald Reagan. And he could, he could have called me up and said, mow the lawn. And I would have said, yes, sir, and I would have mowed the lawn. But there's a lot of distance between me way down here and the President of the United States way up here. He is the commander and chief of all military people, and he can tell anybody in uniform to do anything, and if it's lawful, they will have to do it. But how it really works is he had the idea, or somebody told him, the lawn needed to be mowed. So he talks to the generals that are around him, perhaps the Joint Chiefs of Staff, because he realizes that I'm in the Air Force. So he talks to the Air Force general, and he calls up some colonel who calls up some major who calls up a captain who was our squadron commander at that time. We had a captain and he would call in the staff sergeant and say, hey, we need this lawn mode. And he goes, aha, Airman Wilson, he'll do it. And he goes and he tells me, and he tells me with the authority of Ronald Reagan, the President of the United States, when this sergeant tells me to do something, it has the weight, it has the authority of the President of the United States. The authority of the President goes all the way through what is called a chain of command. And this guy is talking, the centurion is talking about that. His commander-in-chief is Caesar in Rome, okay? Now, Caesar's not going to send a messenger to this guy saying, mow the lawn, okay? He is going to use the chain of command. He is going to tell his closest advisors, and it's going to filter down to this centurion who has a hundred people under his command, and he will tell one of them. He doesn't ask one of them. He doesn't negotiate with one of them. He tells one of them to go do this or go do that, and he talks about that. He says, if I tell somebody, go, they go. And if I say another, come, he comes. And then he talks about his servants, like this sick one. And he says, if I tell a servant, do this, they will do it. He understands how military authority works. And what he is saying is, 
That is how Jesus is doing things. He says, I understand it this way, and I'm going to put my understanding of this onto Jesus. And so we have to ask the question, does Jesus have a chain of command like that? Does Jesus have, as it were, military authority? Well, Jesus says throughout the Gospels, and it's throughout the New Testament, that Jesus is under the authority of God the Father. Now, they are Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all God, all of the Trinity, all co-equal persons in the Trinity, all fully God. Jesus was fully God and fully man, but in his incarnation, he makes it clear. He only does what the Father says. He is under the authority of the Father. He gets prayers answered by the Father. Remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is praying to the Father, saying, take this cup away from me so that I don't have to go to the cross, find another way. But your will, the Father's will, not Jesus' will, be done. And so in this setup, Jesus is under the authority of the Father. So the Father wants this servant child to be healed. And the Father tells Jesus, however that works, to heal this servant child. But then you have to ask the question, so that's a really short chain of command. You know, got two beings there, two persons. What does Jesus have authority over? And the answer is everything. Everything else in the world. You have the Father telling Jesus what to do, and then everything else in creation, everything else, whether it be a sickness, whether it be a natural force like a rainstorm, whether it be a a demonic force. Jesus has absolute authority over it. And so we can ask the question, well, does Jesus have authority over a paralyzing sickness that is going to kill this young person? And we answer that by saying, is a paralyzing sickness in a young person a thing in the world, if it is a thing in the world, if it is a thing that exists, Jesus has authority over it. And when we say authority, it isn't negotiated authority, it isn't that Jesus is going to try, it isn't that Jesus is going to, you know, say an incantation and hope that it works. Jesus does not have to look up a magical spell to say it. He has innate authority over all of creation. And what the centurion is saying is, I have this level of authority, which is really tiny compared to Jesus' authority, and because of that, I understand how you're doing things. You don't have to come into my house and speak to the person, touch the person, lay hands on the person. You don't have to do anything physically to the person. 
You have authority over the sickness even when you're way over here. Even when you're way over here, you can say something or think something or however Jesus does it, and the person is healed, and it says that that's how it happened, is that there's a discussion here about authority, and there's a discussion here about end times, and then he says, go, and your servant is healed, and the servant was healed that very hour. And you say, well, how? Well, Jesus has authority over sickness. Jesus told that sickness, whatever the cause, the cause was a bacteria, the cause was a virus, the cause was a physical injury, the cause was demonic. We have no idea what was causing this sickness, but that doesn't matter because Jesus has absolute authority over anything that exists in this world or in the universe. Remember, before all this, God was out there in the out there nothingness all by himself and he created everything that you see. We know from the book of Hebrews that it's Jesus Christ that was actually the agent of creation, that Jesus Christ, God said, let there be light and Jesus made it happen somehow. We did, you know, and so the whole creation thing was everything that exists, whether it be the planets and the stars, the spiritual forces, the physical forces, the bizarre sicknesses and, and things that we have. God created all of that and has authority all after all that. God never has to play catch-up. God never has to look something up because he doesn't understand it. God never has to... Uh, figure out a way around something or how a system works to work the system. He just has absolute authority. He wills something to happen and it happens no questions asked. God doesn't have to do it twice, for example, because he did it wrong the first time. He has absolute authority. And so when we look at our lives and we look at the various authorities that are in our lives, every authority, like the centurion's authority over his hundred men, that is delegated or borrowed authority. The Bible makes it clear that if I have any authority over anybody it is borrowed, it is delegated, and that goes all the way up to generals and presidents and governors and congresspeople, is that their power and their authority is lent to them by God. God is the only true, pure, absolute authority, and everybody else that claims authority is borrowing it from God, whether they understand it or not. I know that there are power-hungry people in the world who believe that they are on their own throne and they are going to do stuff and you can't tell them the other way. You know, anything they do or have is borrowed by God. And when you look at the end times, one of the things that Jesus will judge us on is how we 
used how we manage the authority that they borrowed from him. And if there are people who their whole lives deny that God exists, but they are very powerful people, they will have their eyes opened in a radical moment of revelation, and they will understand that their whole life they've been borrowing authority, and they now have to give an account of how they used that authority. Jesus then talks about faith. The faith of the centurion says it in Luke 7, 9 and Matthew 8, 10. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly, truly, I tell you, no one in Israel have I found such faith. So what is faith? What is faith in this situation? Faith requires an object. You have faith in somebody. You have faith in something. And you get faith in something by knowing about that thing, about that person. If I have faith in God, I can have faith in God because I know some things about God. I take those things as fact and then I act upon them. People have said that true faith is putting legs to your knowledge. And so the centurion, he puts together a couple of puzzle pieces by saying, I understand how my life works, and that's a small microcosm of how God works in the authority picture. And so he knows authority. He knows authority like the back of his hand. He lives authority every day as a military commander. And he says, God is like that too. Now, if he just said, God is like that too, and then watched his servant die, there's no faith there. He didn't act upon his knowledge. He didn't act upon what he figured out what was revealed to him by the Holy Spirit. The fact that he can send people to Jesus to bring him is an act of faith. He believes God has authority over all sickness, so I bring Jesus to me to make something happen. That is the faith that Jesus is talking about, is that this person... This centurion is functioning as if his knowledge of God's authority is true. And from the rest of Scripture, we understand that, yeah, he has it pretty much figured out, okay? That, that God is a God of authority and works through authority. But his faith is shown by sending people to bring Jesus. His faith is shown by saying... I'm not worthy for you to come into my house. You just say a word and this person will be healed. That is an act of faith. That is what Jesus is saying. Wow, this person has faith because of what they did. And that is what James is talking about when he talks about faith and works. I can say I have faith all day long, but if I'm not doing something about it, I can say I believe in God. I can say I can believe in the work of the cross, that the blood of Christ has saved me, that I have atonement and an adoption, 
and all these things that happened at the cross, I can say these things are true, but if I don't live that way, if I don't become a person who studies the Bible to learn more about it, if I don't become a person who prays about my life because I believe God has authority over my life. And so I can pray about it, and I can pray saying, I want this to happen, or I'm confused about this, or this is a problem and I don't know what to do. I can pray. There's a surgery upcoming. I can pray for healing. Prior to the surgery, it would be fantastic if she shows up at the doctor's and the doctor says, you're the wrong patient. There's nothing wrong with your hip, okay? We can pray for healing, but we can also pray for wisdom for the doctor. We can pray for a peaceful hospital operating room environment so that things go smoothly, so that there are no difficulties. I have no problem praying for absolute healing and wisdom for the doctors. Because I don't know what God's going to do. I don't know what God knows what he's going to do. But I don't know what God's going to do tomorrow on the 5th of May, on the 6th of May. He's not telling me. So I look through his word and I say, huh, sometimes God heals people. So I'll pray for healing. But oh, you look in, in the book of First and Second Timothy... Paul's telling Timothy, the young pastor, to drink a little wine for his upset stomach. You go, oh, sometimes God uses medicine to heal people. Okay, Paul didn't say, oh, I'm praying for your healing. He said, this is an easy fix. Take a little bit of fermented drink to take care of your stomach. When Paul had a thorn in the flesh and a difficulty, he entreated God three times. And God said, nope. God said, my grace is sufficient for you. And then he said, I will glory then in my weakness. He understood what God is doing and acted upon it. It is so easy today when prayers don't go our way to say, well, God doesn't love me. Or God doesn't exist. My prayers are meaningless. My prayers are worthless. And that is showing a lack of faith when you stop interacting with God because of your knowledge. You're calling your knowledge wrong. And so how do people get this knowledge? Well, we witness to people. I know some things about God. Do I know everything about God? No. Do I know some things about God? Yes. And so somebody who does not believe in God, what I know about God is huge because I know a few things about God. And if I tell somebody about God, if I tell somebody what Christ did on the cross, if I tell somebody about the problem of sin and how God can take care of it and that he's coming again, to collect his own. I can tell people about that and they have the option then to say, nah, I don't believe it and keep going the way they're going. But if they say, you know, I believe what you're saying, then I would expect to see a change in their life over time. A change of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Because if they say, I believe what you're saying about Jesus Christ, then they have moved from 
unsaved to saved, they have moved from death into life. They have moved from Satan's kingdom into God's kingdom. And so I would expect to see some changes. I would expect to see some church attendance and some Bible study. And when they, when they come to Bible study, they would have questions of, well, I was reading this and I don't understand what the, what the centurion is saying. And we can talk about it because somebody who doesn't believe about God could care less what the centurion is saying. So these are th ways that we see the Holy Spirit moving. We see them interested in the things of God. And then Jesus healed the servant without, uh, uh, you know, without, he just said go and boom, it was done. And so this centurion uh, believed God and God responded. Now the centurion saying he's not worthy is a true position. None of us are worthy for God to love us. None of us are worthy for God to have mercy and compassion on us. But he does, and we praise him for that, and that's what draws us closer to him. Now in Matthew, Jesus right in the middle tells a little story. He says, truly I tell you, no one in Israel I have found that had such faith. In verse 11, 8, 11, I tell you, many will come from the east and the west. That is a way of saying the whole world. If you're coming from the east and the west, you're coming from everywhere. And recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus is doing the, the Jewish view that heaven is a big banquet, is a big feast in which we all you know, meet all the Old Testament characters and, and, and talk with them while eating all this great non-fattening food. And Jesus is saying that people from all over the world, in other words, Gentiles, are going to end up at this table, but sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The sons of the kingdom are the Jewish people, are the Jewish leadership, are the Pharisees and the priests and the scribes who came against Jesus every single day telling him he was wrong. Jesus told them a truth about himself and they said, I refuse to believe it. I will believe what my mind makes up on its own. I will believe what puts me in the proper position of wealth and power in society. And when it's all said and done, anybody who says, I'm going to believe in myself and my own power and my own strength, that's going to end up in outer darkness, which we would call hell, where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth for all of eternity. Those who reject Christ get to mull over their decisions in life, and there will be weeping where they are sad, where they are repentant, where they are asking God to save them and get them out of here in a truly repentant way. And then there's gnashing of teeth, which is anger, which is anger at God for putting them in that position, anger at God for not saving them out of that position. We have a period of time in this world to learn as much as we can about God and to 
believe it, and in believing it, entering into the kingdom of God. Now, some people have said, well, what about the pygmies in Africa? They've never heard about Jesus. I guarantee you, this centurion had no Christian upbringing. He had no Christian parents. He had no Christian friends. Okay? But he heard stories. He heard things. The Holy Spirit was working on his life. And he understood things. And he believed. And so you're going to see this centurion in heaven. And you can sit next to him if you want at the great banquet. And you can talk to him about his faith. And you can talk to him about all the things that are written about him here and how he came to these conclusions as you're also talking with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Hosea, and all the other Old Testament characters that truly followed God. At the end of time, what we heard, how we reacted to it, what we believe, and what we reject is what Jesus Christ will be judging for all eternity. Let us pray. Lord God Almighty, we thank you for this truth. We thank you that there is information that we can learn, that we can know, and that in knowing it, we can be uh, part of your kingdom. Lord, we praise you for that, and we ask your blessing on the remainder of the day and upon this time of communion. We ask this through the blood of Christ. Amen. Cornerstone Fellowship is located at 180 Llewellyn Boulevard, San Lorenzo, California. Our Sunday morning service is at 1045 a.m. Our website is livingfreetoday.org and our phone number is 510-278-2622. May God continue to bless you as you serve your King. God bless.